Welcome to the Crack Open a Classic podcast, the podcast where I read a chapter or two, an episode aloud, ask questions to help you think about the chapter, and open the world of classics to you. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's jump into the chapter. Hello, hello, hello. So another announcement. I know I think my last podcast had an announcement. I am back, if all goes well. The last six weeks has been very difficult for my family and for me, and I just did not have the brain power to dedicate the time or the energy to this podcast. So I put it on the back burner just for my mental health and clarity. We'll finish up 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. By the time you hear this podcast, I will have many episodes recorded and ready to go out as I edit them. Thank you for your patience. I will also announce the next book uh, towards the end of this, of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, so probably within the last four or five chapters. I will have chosen and started recording the next book. Thank you again for your patience, and I hope you enjoy 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea as much as I enjoy reading it. Part 2. Chapter 1. The Indian Ocean. We now begin the second stage of our journey under the sea. The first had ended with that moving scene in the coral graveyard, which had made such a deep impression in my mind. It was now evident that the life of Captain Nemo was destined to be spent in the bosom of those immense oceans, and that he had even prepared his grave in the most inaccessible depths of the sea. No sea monster would ever trouble his last sleep there, nor the sleep of his crew, friends bound to each other in death as well as in life. Nor would they ever be disturbed by men, he had added. Always that same fierce, implacable defiance of human society. I was no longer satisfied with Conseil's theory. That worthy lad still felt that the commander of the Nautilus was one of those unrecognized scientists spurned by a society whose indifference they repaid with contempt and hatred. For Conseil, the captain, was still the misunderstood genius who, weary of this world's deceptions, had sought refuge in those inaccessible regions where his nature could have free play. In my opinion, this theory explained only one aspect of the life of Captain Nemo. The mysterious incidents of this night, when we had been dragged and imprisoned, the violence with which he had snatched that telescope from my eyes to prevent me from scanning the horizon, the mortal wound inflicted upon a member of the crew by an unexplained collision of the Nautilus. All this led me to re-examine my thoughts. No, Captain Nemo was not satisfied merely to flee humanity. His formidable craft served to satisfy not only his yearning for freedom, but also, perhaps, an intense desire for vengeance. At that moment, nothing was very clear in my mind. Only faint glimmers of light stood out from the mysterious background of that strange man, and I could describe my thoughts only as they were shaped by the events themselves. Nothing bound us to Captain Nemo. He knew it was impossible for us to escape from the Nautilus. We were not honor-bound to remain on board. We were merely captives only prisoners disguised as guests through a pretense of courtesy. However, Ned Land had not given up hope of regaining his freedom. There was no question that he would take advantage of the first opportunity to escape. Undoubtedly, I would do the same. Nevertheless, I would not have escaped without a pang of regret, for the captain and his generosity had permitted us to share the mysteries of the Nautilus. Should we hate or admire this man? Was he a victim of circumstances? or an executioner. 
To be perfectly frank, I did want to finish this underwater journey around the world, which we had begun so magnificently before leaving him forever. I did want to see all those marvels accumulated beneath the waters of the world. I did want to see what no man had ever seen before, even if I might pay for my insatiable thirst for knowledge with my life. What I had learned so far? Nothing, or almost nothing, since we had traveled so far, only 6,000 leagues across the Pacific. I realized... Moreover, that the Nautilus was approaching inhabited lands, and that if an opportunity to escape were to arise, it would be cruel to sacrifice my companions because of my passion for the unknown. I would have to follow them, perhaps even guide them, but would such an opportunity ever present itself? I, as an individual deprived of his free will, longed for such an occasion, of course, but the scientist in me curious for knowledge dreaded it. On that day, January 21st at noon, the second in command came up on the platform to take our position. I went up also. I lit a cigar and I watched him as he carried out his work. It was obvious that he knew no French because on several occasions I passed remarks loud enough to evoke a reaction. If he understood them, he remained silent and impassive. While he was looking through his sextant, one of the sailors, the powerful-looking man, who had accompanied us on our first excursion to the Isle of Crespo, came to clean the glass panes of the searchlight. I took the opportunity to examine the setup of this instrument, whose power was increased a hundredfold by the use of ringed lenses, arranged like those of a lighthouse, to throw its intensive light in every direction. The electric device was so designed as to give the maximum amount of light. In fact, it worked like a vacuum, which ensured both intensity and stability. That vacuum gave a longer life to the graphite points at either extremity of the electric arc, something important for Captain Nemo, who could not have replaced them so easily. However, under these conditions, the wear and tear was almost negligible. When the Nautilus was ready to submerge again, I went back to the saloon. The hatches were closed, and our course was set due west. We were then sailing through the waters of the Indian Ocean, that vast expanse of liquid with an area of 1,200,000,000 acres, whose waters were so clear that anyone peering down into their depths felt giddy. The Nautilus cruised at a depth of somewhere between three and six hundred feet and went along like this for several days. To anyone who did not have any love for the sea, the hours would have seemed endless and boring. My daily walks on the platform, breathing the invigorating air of the sea, the sights of those teeming waters seen through the panels of the saloon, the wealth of books in the library, and the writing of my notes took all of my time and left me not a moment of lassitude or boredom. We had managed to keep in excellent health. The food on board agreed with us, and as far as I was concerned, we could have easily dispensed with those variations Ned Land ingeniously, and in a spirit of protest, managed to procure. Moreover, in such a constant temperature, we didn't even run the risk of catching colds. Besides, the Mandroporia dendrophilia, known in province as sea fennel, of which there was a good supply on board, would have given us an effective cough remedy when mixed with the juicy flesh of its polyps. For several days, we saw great numbers of aquatic birds, palmipeds, sea mews, or gulls. Some were shot down with great skill, and when prepared in a certain manner, furnished us with a very pleasant dish. Among the large-winged birds far from land, which rest on the crests of the waves when tired, I saw some magnificent albatrosses, birds belonging to the family of longipinates, whose harsh cries resembled the braying of an ass. The family of totopalmates was represented by the swift-flying frigate birds, 
which snatched fish swimming near the surface, and by numerous phaetons or tropic birds, including the red-striped phaeton, the size of a pigeon, whose plumage, shaded in pink, contrasts vividly with its black wings. The nets cast by the nautilus brought up several kinds of sea turtles, mainly the hawkbill variety, with their dome-like back and very valuable shell. These reptiles, which dive easily, can remain underwater for a long time merely by closing a fleshy valve located in the external orifice of their nasal passage. Some of them were still asleep in their shells when caught. Their shells protected them from the ra ravages of other animals. The flesh of these animals were generally mediocre, but their eggs provided us with a regal dish. As for the fish, they always filled us with the greatest admiration when we, standing at the open panels, pried into the secrets of their aquatic life. I noticed several species that I had never observed before. I shall mention principally the ostracious or trunkfish, peculiar to the Red Sea, the Indian Ocean, and the waters that bathe the coasts of South America. These fish, like the turtle, the armadillo, and the sea urchin, and the shellfish, are protected by a hard shell that is neither chalky nor stony, but made of real bone, sometimes in the shape of a triangle, sometimes in the shape of a square. Among the triangle variety, I observed some that were about two inches long with a brown tail and yellow fins, whose flesh is both healthy and exquisite. I suggest that these be acclimatized to fresh water, a change that some sea fish can undergo easily. I shall cite also some quadrangular trunkfish with four large tubercles on their back. Trunkfish with white flecks on their bellies, which can be trained like birds, trigonae, armed with spines formed by an external growth of bony shell and whose peculiar grunts have given them the name sea pigs, dromedaries with large conical humps whose flesh is hard and leathery. From the daily notes of Conseil, I would also add certain fish of the genus Tetradon, peculiar to those waters, Spinglarians, red-backed and white-chested, with three rows of longitudinal filaments, and electric tetradons seven inches long and very brightly colored. Then among specimens of other genera, ovioids that resemble a brown-black egg and have white stripes and no tail, diadons, porcupines of the sea, armed with spikes capable of inflating themselves until they look like a ball covered with spikes, seahorses common to all seas, the long-snouted pegasus, whose pectoral fins were wing-shaped, enabling it if not to fly, at least leap into the air, pigeon spatulae, whose tails were covered with shelly rings, macrognathae, bright-colored fish with jaws ten inches long, livid calliomores with rough-shaped heads, myriads of jumping blinnies, black-striped with long pectoral fins, gliding along the surface at fantastic speeds, delicious velifera, who can lift their fins like sails to catch favorable currents, splendid curtidae, arrayed in yellow, sky-blue, silver, and gold, trichoptera, whose wings are formed of filaments, bullheads with lemon-colored spots, making hissing noises, gurnards, whose liver is supposed to be, a, be dangerous to eat, greenlings with flaps over their eyes, and finally bellowsfish with long tubular muzzles, true flycatchers of the sea, armed with a gun undreamed of by the chassipots or the remingtons, which can kill an insect by hitting it with a drop of water. Of the 89th genus of fishes, as classified by Lesapidae, belonging to the second subclass of bony fish characterized by the opercula and bronchial membranes, I noticed the scorpion fish having a spiked head and one dorsal fin. These creatures may or may not be covered with small scales depending on their subgenus. The second subgenus includes specimens of didactyla, 
13 or 15 inches long with yellow striped fantastic looking heads. The first subgenus provides specimens of that bizarre fish justly called toadfish with a large head sometimes swollen with protuberances bristling with spikes and covered with nodules. Its hideous horns, its callous hide, and its poisonous sting make it both a dangerous and a most repulsive creature. From the 21st to the 23rd of January, the Nautilus sailed at the rate of 250 leagues every 24 hours, or 540 miles a day, averaging about 22 nautical miles per hour. We were able to identify various kinds of fish because they were attracted by the electric light and sought to accompany us. Most of them, however, could not keep up with our speed and were left behind. Some of them, on the other hand, managed to swim side by side with the Nautilus for some time. On the morning of the 24th, in latitude 12 degrees 5 minutes south, by longitude 94 degrees 33 minutes, we sighted Keeling Island, a madreporal formation covered with magnificent coconut palms, which had been visited by Charles Darwin and Captain Fitzroy. The Nautilus sailed past this desert island only a short distance from its shores, while our nets dragged up numerous specimens of polyps and echinoderms, as well as curious mollusks. Captain Nemo's store of precious exhibits was further enhanced by various types of miniature dolphin, to which I added a spiny starfish, a kind of polyp parasite, often attached to a shell. Very soon Keeling Island disappeared below the horizon, and our course was set northwest toward the tip of the Indian Peninsula. These are civilized countries, Ned Land remarked to me that day, better than those Papuan islands, where we meet more savages than deer. In India, Professor, there are roads, railways, and English. French and Hindu towns. You couldn't go five miles without meeting a fellow countryman. Don't you think the time has come to bid Captain Nemo a courteous farewell? No, Ned, no, I replied in a very decisive tone. A voice, let things ride, as you sailors say. The Nautilus is approaching populated countries. She is heading toward Europe. Just let her take us there. Once we reach home waters, we shall see what is the wisest thing to do. However, I don't imagine that Captain Nemo will permit us to go hunting on the coasts of Malabar or Cormandel, as he did in the jungle of New Guinea. But don't you think, monsieur, that we might act on our own without his permission? I did not answer the Canadian because I preferred to avoid an argument. At heart, I really wished to follow to the very end the adventures that destiny held in store for us aboard the Nautilus. After leaving Keeling Island, we slowed down and traveled at random, often diving down to great depths. On several occasions, using those side fins that could be set at an angle, we reached depths of two or three miles. However, we never plumbed the lowest depths of the Indian Ocean, which even soundings of over 40,000 feet have so far failed to do. The temperature of these lower strata is constant, and the thermometer generally registered 4 degrees above zero Celsius, or 39 degrees Fahrenheit. I observed also that the upper strata were always colder in shallow waters than in the open sea. On the 25th of January, the ocean was completely deserted, and the Nautilus spent all day on the surface, threshing the waves with her powerful propeller and splashing water up to a great height. Who would not have taken her for a gigantic cetacean under these conditions? I spent three quarters of the day on the platform gazing at the sea. Nothing appeared on the horizon till about four o'clock in the evening, when a long steamer plowing its way westward in the opposite direction appeared on the horizon. I caught a glimpse of her masts for an instant, but she could not have seen the Nautilus, which did not rise too much above the water. I imagine this boat belonged to the P&O lines, which plies 
between Ceylon and Sydney, calling at King George's Point and at Melbourne. At five o'clock in the evening, not long before the very brief twilight that occurs between day and night in the tropics, Conseil and I were astonished by a strange sight. There is a charming creature which, according to the ancients, brings good fortune if it crosses one's path. Aristotle, Athanasius, Pliny, Opianus had studied its habits and had written poetically about it in Greek and in Latin. They called it the Nautilus or the Pompilius, but to modern folk, this mollusk is now known as the Argonaut. If anyone interested in the subject had consulted Conseil, that worthy lad would have informed him that the division of mollusks comprises of five classes. The first class, that of the cephalopods, which are sometimes naked and sometimes covered with a shell, consists of two families, Dibranchiata and the Tetrabranchiata, which are distinguished by the number of their gills. The family of Dibranchiata comprises three species, the Argonaut, the Squid, and the Cuttlefish. And the family of the Tetrabranchiata consists of but one species, the Nautilus. It would be inexcusable if, after being treated to all this terminology, an obdurate listener insisted on confusing the Argonaut, which is equipped with suckers and siphons, with the Nautilus, with its tentacles. And, indeed, that what we now saw was a school of Argonauts traveling along the surface of the ocean. We counted several hundreds of them. They belonged to the tubercle species peculiar to the Indian seas. These graceful mollusks moved backward by sucking in water and expelling it again through their propulsory tubes. Of their eight tentacles, six were long and thin and floated on the surface, while the other two were rounded like palm leaves and held up to the wind like light sails. I could clearly see their spiral and fluted shells, which Cuvier had justly compared to elegant skiffs. And indeed, the shell is a boat, for the creature whom it carries has created it but is not attached to it. The Argonaut is free to leave its shell if it wants to, I told Conseil, but it never does. That's just like Captain Nemo, Conseil remarked wisely. He would have done better, perhaps, to have called this ship the Argonaut. For about an hour, the Nautilus was surrounded by this school of mollusks. Then suddenly, I do not know what fear possessed them, as if at a signal, they suddenly furled their sails, withdrew their arms, their bodies contracted, and their shells turned over, shifting their centers of gravity, and the whole flotilla disappeared beneath the water. It all happened in a flash, and no naval squadron has ever executed such a precise maneuver. Just then, night fell suddenly, and the waves, scarcely touched by the light breeze, lay quietly around the Nautilus. The next day, the 26th of January, we crossed the equator at the 82nd meridian and re-entered the northern hemisphere. All that day, we were escorted by a formidable school of sharks, fearful creatures that bound in these waters and render them extremely perilous. There are Philip sharks with brown backs and whitish bellies armed with 11 rows of teeth, eyed sharks whose necks are marked with big black spots encircled with white resembling an eye, and Isabella sharks with rounded snouts and dotted with dark spots. These powerful animals often hurled themselves against the glass panes of the saloon so violently we felt quite unsafe. Ned Land could no longer contain his anger. He wanted to surface and harpoon these monsters. He was especially excited to, for the dogfish, whose mouths were studded with teeth resembling a mosaic, and the big tiger sharks, which were about 15 feet long. But soon the Nautilus increased her speed and left the swiftest of them behind with no difficulty. On the 27th of January, at the entrance of the vast Bay of Bengal, we occasionally saw corpses floating on the surface. 
These were the dead of Indian towns carried out to sea by the Ganges. The vultures, the only undertakers in, in that country, had not been able to devour them completely. However, the sharks could be relied upon to finish that grisly task. At about seven o'clock in the evening, the Nautilus was half submerged and seemed to be sailing through a milk-colored sea. As far as the eye could see, the ocean appeared to be lactified. Could it be the effect of the moonlight? It could not be. The moon, barely two days old, was still invisible below the horizon and immersed in the rays of the sun. The whole sky, although bright and sunny, seemed dark by contrast to the milky whiteness of the water. Pensei could scarcely believe his eyes and asked me to explain this strange phenomenon. Fortunately, I could give him an answer. This is what is known as the Milky Sea, I told him. A vast stretch of white water often seen off the coast of Ambonia and in this area. But, asked Conseil, could Monsieur explain to me what produces this effect? I don't suppose this water has actually been changed into milk. No, Conseil. This whiteness that you find so strange is due to the presence of myriads of infusoria, a sort of tiny luminous worm. This creature is gelatinous and colorless to look at, no thicker than a hair, and no more than one hundredth of an inch long. Some of them attach themselves to one another and form a white layer over a distance of several leagues. Several leagues? exclaimed Kinsei. Yes, my lad. And don't try to guess the number of all those infusoria. It's impossible to do so. If I'm not mistaken, ships have sometimes sailed through these milky seas for more than 40 miles. I don't know whether Kinsei heeded my advice, but he appeared to be plunged into deep meditation and doubtless trying to work out how many hundreds of an inch could be packed in an area of 40 miles square. I continually observed this phenomenon. For several hours, the Nautilus cruised through these milky white waters, and I noticed that it glided through these foamy waves silently, as if it were floating in one of those frothy eddies that can be seen when two currents flowing in opposite directions converge. Toward midnight, the sea suddenly resumed its normal color, but behind us, as far as the eye could see, the sky continued to reflect the white color of the waves, and for a long time it seemed to be illuminated by the delicate glimmers of the aurora borealis. Questions to consider after reading. Do you agree with Kinsey's theory that Captain Nemo is a misunderstood genius or Professor Aranax's theory that Nemo wants freedom and vengeance? Why do you think Aranax is torn between wanting to stay on the Nautilus and escaping? What is the connection Kinsey makes between Nemo and the Argonauts? What caused the ocean to be milky? Have you seen this site in real life? Thank you for listening to today's chapter. If you would like to discuss the questions, follow me on the Crack Open a Classic podcast Instagram page and comment on today's chapter's post. If you like this podcast, please share it with others so we can get the word out about more classics. If you would like to suggest a book to be read, email me at crackopenaclassicpodcast at gmail.com. Check back tomorrow for the next chapter in this adventure.